Welcome everybody, good afternoon. Our speaker today is uh, Dr. Lotem, Lotem Peri Hazan, who is the head of the Center for Jewish and Democratic Education and the Education and Management Program at the University of Haifa in Israel. Uh, her research interests include the intersection of law, religion, and culture in education and children's rights in education. Uh, maybe I should mention that tomorrow she will be lecturing also on uh, children's rights in uh, education. Many of her studies have focused on uh, Haredi education in Israel and other countries. Um, she's a graduate of NYU School of Law and University of Haifa's Faculty of Law. She was also a visiting scholar at uh, various institutions in Europe, America, and Australia. Australia. Yeah. And the title of her talk today is Ethnic Segregation in the Haredi Education in Israel, Policies and Practices. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Um, the talk today will be based on two studies that I published uh, uh, lately. Uh, one is a comparative studies. Uh, uh, is a comparative study. I'll focus on the section that uh, uh, deals with Israel. And the other is a study about uh, Haredi uh, parents who complained about discrimination in uh, the admission policies in the school. I heard that you had another talk uh, last week about uh, the division between Sephardic and Ashkenazic uh, uh, streams or groups in the Haredi community. So I'll try uh, to be short in the introduction and uh, I'll see in your face if you are already familiar with the things that I'll say. <clears throat> well, uh, the Haredi community in Israel, now around 12% of the population, um, 20% of primary school pupils. Um, strong political influence, um, during the last two decades, the Haredi parties are like a balanced pivot in Israeli politics. Um, they <coughs> recruit politicians to promote their own interests. Uh, usually, it's a core curriculum in education, in the educational arena. Um, I think that uh, uh, the most uh, pressing political issues uh, relate to the core curriculum. The admission policies are considered like an issue that is untouchable for Haredi politicians, uh, as because I will explain later, uh, most Har Sephardic Haredi politicians who uh, are members of the Shas party, the Shas represents uh, uh, the Shas party represents uh, Haredi uh, Sephardic Jews. So most of them send their own children to the Ashkenazi yeshivas. Okay, so they don't like have an interest to promote uh, the issue uh, or issues that uh, relate to admission policies in the Israeli Knesset. And a few words about the groups and subgroups that uh, um, uh, considered to be Haredi, because Haredi Jews is not like one community. We usually say like they are all like wearing the black hats and they are special. <laughs> special outfit, but in fact, uh, there are huge differences between the groups. And mm, we usually divide uh, the Haredi community to three main groups, which are Hasidic, the Lithuanian or resistors, opposers, and the Sephardi community. The Hasidic and the Lithuanian uh, groups are Ashkenazi. And <clears throat> meaning they came like from uh, Eastern European countries. Um, the main difference between the two groups um, relates to their worldview. The Hasidic, uh, Hasidic Jews, <coughs> the, the most important uh, factor in the worldview is uh, the belonging to the court, to the Hasidic court. The court is led by an Admor, who is a spiritual leader. Um, and the most important factor for the Lithuanian Haredi uh, Jews is the study of Torah. Okay, not just in schools, but uh, uh, along their life. Like to be a, a religious scholar, to study in a yeshiva, and not to work for the living. 
Uh, we call it in Hebrew, Torato Omanuto. So this is the main difference between the Hasidic and the Lithuanian. And the Sephardic community, actually it, it is a new Haredic community because the traditional religious society in Morocco, in North Africa, was mostly uh, traditional and opened to modernity and to integration in the general society. But after the Holocaust, um, and I will explain it more later, um, Sephardic Jews became uh, closer and closer to the Lithuanian group. They wanted to study in the yeshivas, uh, both in Morocco and in Israel, and I will explain this process later. But the outcome is that now in Israel, the Sephardic community um, focuses on religious studies in their schools, and they try to resemble the Lithuanian community in terms of um, emphasizing the importance of religious studies. Yet, they are more integrated in the general society and in politics, in Israeli politics. They are uh, relatively more open to modernity, um, but within strict limits. And there are a, a lot of variations between the Sephardic Haredi community, uh, so <clears throat> we can divide it also to three or more groups. And the Hasidic community, uh, scholars usually divide it to uh, traditional courts like Belts, Slonim, Gur, if you know the names. These are courts that are <coughs> titled uh, according to cities in Eastern Europe where they, uh, the communities were established. And there are uh, two um, substreams within the, the general term uh, uh, Hasidic communities. One is Chabad, which for many Haredi Jews, they are not Haredi at all. They, they treat it like something else. Because the most important issue for Chabad is to spread Judaism around the world, to attract more and more Jews to the Chabad community. Um, so the worldview is different, and Chabad usually, uh, uh, Chabad Jews do not integrate with other Hasidic groups, and generally they are more integrated in the Haredi society, and their schools are, most of them are even public schools, which is different than the other schools. Uh, I will explain it later, um, uh, the legal status of uh, uh, Haredi schools in Israel. And there are also radical communities in Mer Shearim, if you know the <coughs> Haredi neighborhood in Jerusalem, which is a very famous Haredi neighborhood. The radical communities, uh, which are mostly uh, Satmar, Toldot Aaron, uh, they don't take money from the state. Um, they don't pay taxes, and many of them even don't have like in, an Israeli ID. So it's important to make the distinction between the mainstream Hasidic groups and the radical communities, because you know the worldview is different, the lifestyle is different, and the relationship with the state is totally different, okay? So, a few words uh, about the Sephardic Haredi community, because <coughs> um, my talk will focus on this community. Um, some history. <coughs> the Haredi struggled to save the Sephardic Jews after the Holocaust um, was uh, in Morocco, as I said uh, uh, earlier, and in Israel. Um, many young men from Eastern Europe came to Morocco after the Holocaust to save the Sephardi community from modernity, um, mostly from Alliance School. Do you know Alliance Network? It's um, <coughs> a French network of schools which is uh, very open to modernity and secular studies. So they established yeshivas, the Haredi young men in Morocco and in Israel to attract Sephardic Jews uh, to become more religious and join the Haredi community. 
So this like save, uh, struggle to save uh, uh, the Sephardi community um, influence the relationship between this group until today. Because many Sephardic Jews still see the Lithuanian Haredi as their saviors um, and they like <coughs> feel very thankful for uh, uh, this struggle to establish the yeshivas in Morocco and in Israel and to save them from secularity. Um, but the Sephardic Jews who came to the Ashkenazi yeshivas in Israel, uh, they encountered discrimination. They didn't accept them as equals and there, are, there were uh, specific quotas for Sephardic students in the yeshivas. So during the 80s, uh, the Sephardic Haredi community established it, its own school network. It is called Ma'ayan Achinuch HaTorani, um, which is uh, uh, operative until today. It's an um, official network in Israel, and it includes a lot of schools, Sephardic schools. But still, many of the strong families strong both politically and financially, as they prefer to send their own children to the Ashkenazi schools, okay? Um, why? Generally, they are considered more prestigious, okay? And we see this phenomenon um, in other places around the world, like acting white. This is a term borrowed from the American context. When someone is acting white or passing as white. He's trying to resemble like uh, um, uh, people who are considered more prestigious uh, than him, okay? <coughs> so the whole vision of Shas, which is in Hebrew here, Le'achzir atara le'yoshna, it says here, Shas, Le'achzir atara le'yoshna. Le'achzir atara le'yoshna is to restore the former glory, okay? But in fact, just in terms of admission policies, they um, do not restore the glory of Sephardic, the Sephardic community, but um, all of them are acting white and trying like, to resemble the Ashkenazi Jews. This is a picture of a, a Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, who led the Shas parties, and he was a spiritual leader uh, for many years. He died recently. Um, but the, I think that's the most important uh, uh, quote or vision that represents Shas is to restore the former glory. And this acting white phenomenon or the relationship between Ashkenazic and Sephardic religious are of course part of the broader political issues of relationships between Ashkenazic Jews and Mizrahi Jews in Israel. And he put here some, a book and a TV show and the Israeli Minister of Culture, which is a, a, a Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews, and she's promoting issues relating to Sephardic uh, Jews in Israel. So it's a part of a debate in Israel, but in the Haredi community, the debate is stronger. And the limits are much, much more clear between the different groups. Because in Israel, for example, you can find many couples which are like uh, uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one spouse is Ashkenazi and the other is Sephardi, okay? So you find it a lot in Israel and uh, there's a debate, but the division, uh, uh, I use an academic term, there are less bright boundaries. Uh, there's a lot of literature about bright boundaries between groups. So there is no bright boundaries between uh, Ashkenazic and Mizrahi Jews in Israel, but in the Haredi communities, the boundaries are very, very bright. And they include, for example, the surname of the family, which like uh, uh, can uh, uh, almost always hint to the uh, uh, to the fact of the affiliation to the uh, uh, Sephardi community or Ashkenazi community, okay? It's not mostly about skin color, but the name of the family 
and they are doing, uh, in many cases, they are doing like investigation, actually, to see where did the parents uh, uh, come from. I use the terms Mizrahi and Sephardic, which are actually similar. But when we talk about the Haredi community, Sephardic is like a religious group. Mizrahi is more like ethnic origin. It's the same thing within Israel, like, you know, for, to indicate the same thing, but usually when I talk about religious group, I say Sephardic, and when I talk about the ethnic origin, for example, in this debate, because this debate does not have any connection to the religious issue, okay? So I use the term Mizrahi, okay? <clears throat> so admission policies in Israeli Haredi community. <clears throat> First of all, I, I want to focus on you know, issues of education because you are Israel studies, but I have to explain the school system, which is actually similar to England, because we have religion in the public, here it's a maintained system, okay? So we have the public schools are organized across religious lines. We have the main uh, stream, which is a national stream. And in the national stream, we have three different sectors. We have the Jewish sector, which is mostly secular. We have the Arab sector and the Druze sector. So the sectors, uh, the three sectors study in different schools, okay? So the Jewish secular schools are Jewish. <coughs> we have the national integrated stream um, which actually it's a new stream for Jews who want more Jewish studies in the schools. They are not religious. They don't wear kippahs. They don't pray in the morning. But they want they want more uh, Jewish texts, more uh, study of the Bible in the school. Uh, we have the national religious stream, which is uh, modern Orthodox, uh, modern Orthodox. You are more familiar probably with the term modern Orthodox stream, and we have a very uh, a new stream, which is called National Haredi Stream. I, I have another study that I won't present today about this new stream. It includes for, um, um, uh, this year uh, 40 schools. Uh, it's a 2%, very, very small stream, 2% of the entire uh, um, population of Haredi students study in the National Haredi Stream. It's an officially recognized new stream? Not in the law but in the Ministry of Education Policy, yeah, since 2015. Um, so most, the vast majority of Haredi schools are not public schools. They are pub private schools and they can be recognized schools or exempt schools. The difference between recognized and exempt, um, it doesn't matter so much for the talk, but you should know that exempt schools are uh, schools that are actually exempted from compulsory education law. They don't have a lot of obligation in terms of curriculum, but they do have obligations in regard to admission policies, okay? Whenever you will have a curriculum, if you will take the curriculum from the government, you will take the money from the government. Okay. Well, my talk is about admission policy, but I will say a few words about the curriculum. You see here the percent of the of the public funding. A school that takes, for example, seventy five percent of the funding, so um, it is uh, obliged to apply seventy five percent of the core cur curriculum. As exempt schools. Uh, which take like 55% uh, uh, of the public funding, they are also obliged to uh, implement 55% of the core curriculum. In fact, it doesn't happen because there is no supervision. Nobody knows what they're actually teaching. Um, I just won a grant from the Israeli Science Foundation to explore this issue and we receive a lot of money for four years and we are now entering in the schools we are interviewing principal, school principals, teachers. We are taking like um, uh, teaching materials, and we are trying to see how many of them do implement the core curriculums. And most of them are not, especially not English and uh, subjects which are actually required <laughs> in order to uh, uh, to do the matriculation exams and uh, you know 
uh, enters the universities. So in terms of admission policies, um, public schools are not selective at all, okay? And according to the law, there are public schools that are doing <laughs> a lot of like bypasses, but they're not uh, allowed to select students according to the law. And um, I, I, I added uh, a slide later, which says that not only Haredi Jews discriminate <laughs> against uh, uh, low socioeconomic and uh, specific ethnic origin, uh, uh, there are also public schools that do it. So uh, I don't want to be hypocritical. <laughs> so I added a slide in the end of the, of the talk. But according to the law, they shouldn't be selective. And private schools, they are uh, allowed to make distinctions that are based on religious affiliation, but they are not allowed to discriminate according to race or ethnicity. This is very similar to England. According to the Race Relations Act, the Equality Act, which is in its new name, so schools are allowed to make religious distinctions, but not distinctions that are based on race or ethnicity. <laughs> but the problem is that Sephardic group, Sephardic Haredi group, is both a religious group and a group that is based on its ethnic origin. Okay? And in England, when you make distinctions between religious groups, so basically you're making, making distinctions between Jews and non-Jews. For example, the JFS case, right? The Jews and, you know, the problems were <coughs> the question if he was a Jew according to the definition of uh, the Orthodox rabbi or not. In Israel, that's not a question. The question is, are you already enough to be in this school? Okay? Um, so th this is a really complex issue, like to make decisions, both decisions in the school and later legal decisions. So a lot of litigation over the last two decades. In 2006, um, the court um, uh, uh, ordered the Ministry of Education to um, shape regulations. So there are new admission regulations uh, that established appeals committees within the Ministry of Education which means that if a Sephardic Haredi parents receive a negative answer from the school, uh, the school rejected the uh, boy or the girl. So then instead of going to court, which is very expensive, you know, and you need a lawyer and you need a lot of emotional resources to do it, so you go to appeals committees within the Ministry of Education since 2006. Still, as I will explain later, until lately, these appeals committee were ineffective. A lot of politics, and they were basically ineffective. Um, in 2010, uh, the Emanuel case, I'm sure that at least some of you heard the name, the Emanuel case. It was a case about um, very visible segregation in the Haredi city, Emanuel. Um, actually, the school put like a wall inside the school and established two different tracks for Ashkenazic Haredi girls and Sephardic Haredi girls. <coughs> they even change the hours of the day so they won't see each other, like the, the breaks, okay, um, uh, uh, the hour when the school starts and ends. Uh, they established like uh, different rules, different school code. They were basically in the same school two different schools for Sephardic girls and Ashkenazi girls. So a Sephardic lawyer named Yoav Lalum submitted a petition to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, after many months of uh, discussions and attempts to reach a compromise, so the Supreme Court ordered as Ministry of Education to uh, stop the segregation. And the Haredi Ashkenazi parents refused so there was another, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> another uh, uh, request from the court to declare contempt of court. And then the court uh, uh, declared contempt. And what do you do when there's a contempt of court? There are both fines, 
So the court gave fine for every day of segregation. The network, the Ashkenazi network that runs the school, should like pay the Ministry of Education a certain amount. And also the court imprisoned the Ashkenazi Haredi parents who refused to send their children to the integrated school, which was actually a mistake. Because what's going on when you ordered Haredi uh, Jews like from a secular court, you make an order, and especially when you imprison them, a lot, a lot of struggles in the middle of Jerusalem. And it, beca it becomes like a, a, an issue which is like a religious issue as everybody comes to the street and a lot of mess. The case was closed um, after um, many, many months of struggles in the court. And the court uh, uh, actually agreed the Ashkenazic parents to establish a different school. But it put like a condition not to ask for state funds. The court actually says segregation is illegal. We will not accept segregation and discrimination. It's illegal, you can do it. But if you want to establish a different school, it can be in the same building. It like authorized the different school, but it says, I really, really hope that you didn't establish the, the different school in order to you know, maintain the discrimination, but you can't request state funds. And it is one of the only private schools in Israel that can't receive state funds because there's a court order that it cannot receive state funds. So <clears throat> I will present one, to, one of my studies, which, is, which was an empirical study. Uh, and we asked what was the direct and indirect impact of litigation on the admission policies to Israeli Haredi schools. And we also asked which social mechanisms facilitated or hindered it. We started the study around uh, 2016, something like this. And, and we actually wanted to do, if the court ordered admission uh, uh, regulations and the Emanuel case actually influenced what's going on on the ground, okay? Because as a legal scholar who works in education, I know that the law doesn't matter at all. What matters is what you do with the law in the school. So we did a, a qualitative research. We collected legal and policy documents, school codes, of course, press. Uh, we looked into Haredi websites, and we also interviewed 14 uh, uh, <coughs> policy officials and mostly Haredi parents. And it was really, really hard to find the Sephardic Haredi parents who will be willing to take a part in this research. We looked for parents who complained. That was like the, you know, the basic requirement. We wanted to do why did they complain and to hear the story about the complaint and what was the outcome of the case. So eventually um, we reached those parents who were willing to be interviewed to the study were also very, very activists. It was not like, you know, accidental that they agreed to be interviewed. So we call them like the rights agents. We'll explain it later. They were uh, uh, social activists who really like helped other parents and spread information. So I, they knew a lot about what's going on uh, in the schools and they knew many, many other cases except for the case of their own children, okay? So, <clears throat> We found that since 2006 until around 2013, I will explain what's, uh, uh, what happened in 2013, there was um, a lot of politics in the admission, uh, uh, in the appeals committee, in the uh, admission policies, and specifically in, the, in uh, the appeals committee in the Ministry of Education. Political, mo uh, <coughs> political uh, motives were pulling the strings for example, one of our, uh, our uh, interviewees said, the institutions have studied all tricks, knowing to overcome all committees, all appeals. 
we heard everything is fine. Everything is so sophistic, sophisticatedly managed, making it tough to specifically locate a problem. I know that the administrative level is deeply contaminated. This is a political problem. So this is one of many examples of uh, uh, the political motives and, and interests that were like pouring the entire process in the appeals committee in the Ministry of Education. As I said earlier, Israeli politics is deeply influenced by the Haredi parties. So there are also various obstacles that hinder Haredi parents from asserting their rights. So except for all the politics in the admission committees, so we have factors like uh, communal <laughs> ostracizing and threats because if a parents complain you know, about the school, there's a, a high communal price <coughs> you can pay in the synagogue, in uh, other you know, communal institutions, um, uh, matchmaking, which is a really, really important issue in the Haredi community. Um, so also negative perception of secular courts, um, unequal battle against school. The school almost always is part of a big network, which has a lot of money, which usually has a lawyer, okay? And the parents are individual parents uh, who should like find their own lawyer and uh, um, try to you know, navigate their way in the process. And there's also lack of knowledge about rights and skills to assert them. And this is where it connects to the core curriculum, you know. And um, we have a lot of lawyers in Israel, but we don't have a lot of Haredi lawyers. Because Haredi usually don't go to higher education, so they can't acquire a law degree. Two of our interviewees were lawyers. It is not accidental. They are both parents who, whose children were discriminated, but they were lawyers so they could help other parents. Um, from judicial spaces to political spaces. So what happened that brought the issue of the discrimination, the issue of admission policy from judicial, judicial spaces, Emmanuel case, to the political spaces? First, there was extensive media coverage of the litigation. Emmanuel was all over Israeli news. I knew the case from 2008 because I wrote my PhD about Haredi education. But when I told people, they couldn't believe there was such a case in Israel. Like, you know, the most, uh, it was such a visible segregation like in the US between uh, uh, whites and blacks. But in 2010, after the contempt of court, the media uh, covered it extensively. It was really important. Because in 2013, uh, there was, after many, many years, uh, a government without Haredi parties. And one of the first missions of the new Minister of Education, which, uh, whose uh, name is Shai Piron, uh, was to reform the admission policies of Haredi schools. So the extensive media coverage contributed you know, to uh, this uh, passage of the issue of admission policies from the courts to politics. And then the Ministry of Education reformed the appeals committees, and there were more and more successful appeals that encouraged parents to mobilize their rights. Uh, between 2013 to 2015, which were the years without Haredi parties in the Knesset, 98% um, of all the complaints against the schools were, find, were found justified. And the Ministry of Education also <coughs> put a lot of pressure on the school principals to accept the children. They even threatened like, to take their pension and things like that a lot, a lot of pressure to reform the admission process and a lot of pressure on the school principal to follow the decisions of the ministry, uh, decisions of the Ministry of Education. So it was like, you know, you put a stone in the water. The more and more parents found that the, the appeals are actually successful, 
and then uh, they decided to submit their own complaints. And there were also a very aggressive campaign within the Haredi communities. They distributed flyers. They went, you know, from one person to another and said there are appeals committees and you should submit an appeal by uh, uh, this uh, specific date and we will help you. And the, the process is very, very simple. So there was a change. <clears throat> but we found that the mobilization of rights could not have occurred without a group of Haredi agents of rights that was formed and expanded due to the litigation. So the political change met, you know, specific liar in the Haredi community that was ready for the change. These agents of rights, they heard about the Emmanuel case and it changed like a narrative within the Sephardic Haredi community. I call it like rights consciousness. I explore right, rights consciousness, as Yaakov said earlier, in many aspects. Rights consciousness is, you know, the moment when you like know that something that bad that happens to you in your life is not something that you should accept. It derogates your right. And you, that's, you know, the basic distinction between, you know, un, um, uh, unpleasant things that we all have to accept because they are part of life and practices that infringe our rights and we can go to courts and ask for a remedy. So these parents were already active when the political situation changed in 2013 and they helped the Ministry of Education. The agents of rights were key figures in raising the rights consciousness of Haredi parents and translating the judicial language from theory into practice. For example, they mobilized legal knowledge. Two of them were lawyers. The other had legal knowledge from other sources because there was a mother, for example, who helped many other mothers. So they had the experience and the knowledge is not so complicated. You know, discrimination is not a complicated legal issue. All you have to know is like the procedures of the appeal. They facilitated access to lawyers uh, they spread the echo of successful cases, which was very, very important because already most Haredi people, they don't trust the state, okay? So a lot of alienation towards the state. So it's important that people from within the community, they can encourage parents to submit appeals. And they recruited rabbinical support, which of course is a very important issue as well. Um, an example from one of the interviews. And then there was a long interview in a radio station. I was talking anonymously about my experience. I explained what ethnic discrimination meant, that we should not, <coughs> that we should not legitimate such cases. And if there were additional similar cases, I would assist them. And then I was told, you won't believe it. Since you're talking the radio, calls and faxes have not stopped pouring in. So uh, this was one mother who was interviewed in the radio, and we also had two other interviewees who were journalists. One of them in the Haredi journalism, and the other in the general uh, uh, journalism, in the Ynet, which is a very famous website in Israel. Another example. I urged, I urged her to go to the Ministry of Education. I told her about my personal struggle. I asked her to talk to the media, that she, that she should turn the world upside, upside down for her precious daughter. I asked her, do you know why your daughter is being discriminated? She is rejected because other Sephardi girls who had been discriminated before, before you stayed passive as well. So these are just like few examples from the interviews. Um, the interviews, interviews were really, really fascinating because, as I said earlier, we like catch the agents of rights. <coughs> we didn't mean to do it, but uh, uh, it was like you know um, we we always talk in research about when you don't have a representative sample, okay? Because you have a, low, a, a very high rejection rate. So that's what happened to us. We didn't have like a representative sample, it, but we, we, we made lemonade from the lemon and we uh, talked about the agents of rights because these were our interviewees. 
So conclusions of, the, of this specific study. <coughs> Yaakov, we had time until, um, until four, right? And I should talk uh, until? Okay, okay, great. Uh, okay, you know, I prepared a very, very long um, uh, presentation, so I should choose what I want to talk about. Okay, <coughs> so I'll be very short with uh, the theory because it is in, uh, this is an Israel Studies seminar and not uh, the article has many legal aspects. This is a book, The Hollow Hope, Can Courts Bring About Social Change? A very, very famous uh, book of uh, Gerald Rosenberg uh, from the US. The basic argument is that courts can never bring about social change without political support, that they are actually ineffective. So, what Gerald Rosenberg, is, Gerald Rosenberg is actually saying is that education policy litigation in you know, social issues don't, doesn't have at all a direct impact. So it's ineffective, but in the long run, it can have indirect impact in terms that it can change the political and public discourse. And it happens in the Emmanuel case. It changed the public discourse, and when <coughs> there was a, a political change, so, you know, the issue was on the table of policymakers. So we need political cooperation. But what our study shows, that there was another kind of indirect impact. The litigation also um, raised the rights consciousness of disempowered groups, in this case, the Sephardic Haredi parents, and created grassroots activities. So we showed that rights are mobilized in a bi-directional process. The top-down judicial rulings empowered Haredi agents of rights who mobilized rights from the bottom-up to the appeals committees. So that's all I say uh, about the legal theory, and I'll come back to the Israeli issue. So where are the courts hollow hopes in our case? So, as I said, the, the, um, the manual case was not effective at all. But in the long run, the, courts, the court was not a hollow hope because it did change the discourse. It did change rights consciousness. The discrimination continues. Um, I brought you, like, uh, um, from May uh, uh, 2019, uh, the discrimination, I read from the Hebrew, around 200 simple Sephardic girls what's, uh, uh, <coughs> don't have a seminar, which is a school for Haredi girls. What simple Sephardic girls? These are girls who, whose parents don't have political uh, uh, you know, status and they uh, don't come from high socioeconomic status. That's, um, that's from the Haredi media. And the term simple Sephardic Jews is very, very strong in the Haredi community, okay? So the discrimination continues, but still, I just received this a few days ago before I went to Oxford. Very interesting, one of my interviewees uh, was a lawyer, and he established an association that fights an organization like NGO that finds uh, the discrimination in the Haredi community. And this is like a journal. It has a few pages. It is called Blacklists, okay? Reshimot Shchorot, Blacklists. And I'll read from the Hebrew above. This is a special <coughs> issue to raise the uh, awareness to the prohibition on discrimination and exclusion in Haredi educational institutions. And the, the, the first page open with, it says, Dear parents, know your rights and the rights of your children. And then it like elaborates the regulation of uh, the appeals and the appeals committees. Okay? So it elaborates and he's a lawyer, so he <coughs> is dealing with these issues a lot. And then the other pages, they uh, like bring stories from parents, from children, very, very interesting. So this is like something that I call it like rights consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, very, very effective in the Haredi community. 
And to finish this specific story, I have to say that the unlawful admission policies in Israeli education, they are not only in Haredi schools, they are not the only group who discriminates against other children. There is a national religious school that they uh, discriminate a lot against uh, mostly Mizrahi families and families from low socioeconomic status. Um, they do it in very creative ways, for example, um, fees, very, very high fees in the schools. Uh, there are magnet public schools, uh, uh, spatial schools. I put here some picture of uh, the nature and environment school in Tel Aviv, which was a subject of several uh, lawsuits in uh, the last two or three years of parents who said that the process of admission discriminates against their children. For example, they did like interviews for six year old, years old children, interviews and dynamics. And then you can't say like who passed the interview. There's not like a correct answer for this, okay? And then um, uh, the court decided that it's unlawful like to do interviews for six uh, years old children that, you know, who, is, who are entering the first grade. And there are also other private schools in Israel. And this is a picture of uh, the Green Village, which is like a complex of schools, which are very like elite schools. They attract children from Tel Aviv, Ramat Sharon, and like uh, uh, from high socioeconomic families. They have really, really high fees. So um, uh, we just had a big case about parental fees in Israel. Um, uh, I won't say much, but it is actually a mechanism to be very, very selective and create, in, um, in the long run, discrimination in the schools. So this was the first study. The second study um, uh, included a comparative perspective of uh, Israel, England, and Belgium. And I don't want to say much about England and Belgium uh, because we don't have time and because this is a seminar of Israel studies. I just say that I selected the cases because in these cases, the data that I had enabled me to see how the legal rules are translated on the ground, okay? In, um, um, in the schools, in the uh, local authorities. In England, I had uh, documents of um, <clears throat> specific documents uh, of the OSA, I will explain in a minute. And in Belgium, I did an empirical research. I did interviews uh, in the Haredi community in Antwerp and Antwerp. <coughs> so in England, as I said earlier, the law is really similar to Israel uh, in terms of uh, uh, religious-based uh, uh, classifications. And uh, there's a supervision of the Office of School Adjudicator, which is uh, called the OSA. So I read all the decisions of the OSA about the Jewish schools. So the law in action, I'm sure you all know the JFS case from 2009, which is really famous here in England. And uh, the OSA reports revealed that many Jewish schools were not in compliance with the school admissions code. Because, um, for example, in many schools there is a, a, a request to receive a recommendation from the rabbi. So the OSA said that's not equal. It cannot be an ob objective uh, uh, factor to receive recommendation from the rabbi. And there are also social selectivity in other faith schools. So it's not, you know, not about, uh, uh, only about the Jews. So I'm really, really fast here. <clears throat> in Belgium, we have another situation. Um, schools are not authorized at all to classify pupils by their religious affiliation. Okay, Not in private schools, not in public schools. Public schools, of course, because they are like uh, uh, for uh, 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 many children from many faiths, but not uh, in Haredi schools, for example. Uh, they can't have like admission policies and to say this girl can be admitted into the school and this girl cannot be admitted to the school. So anyone who can pay should come in? Yeah. I told them, for example, I asked a very, very conservative belt school in Antwerp, can I apply for the school? Can, I, uh, um, can my daughters uh, uh, apply for the school? They said no problem, but 
you must agree to the educational scheme and the school rules. You should respect the rules. You know, you should come with the proper outfit and uh, to behave according to the rules. That's your choice. But they said, no problem. Your daughters, and I'm secular, can come to the school. This is a very conservative school, Haredi school, not a, a modern Jewish school in Antwerp. A commission on pupils' rights was established to supervise enrollment procedures and to treat complaints related to infractions of the right to enrollment. In action, Jewish Haredi schools integrate various Haredi groups. And the Commission on Pupils' Rights has consistently maintained that it's not the school's responsibility to predict whether the pupil will be able to adhere to the educational scheme. And that is very effective. When I talked to parents, they said there's a lot of quiet in Antwerp. That was like, you know, the term, quiet. We don't have to fight all the time in the first grade. And then another fight in the seventh grade, when you finish like the primary school or in some of the school it's a seventh grade, in other school it's um, a ninth grade. There's a lot of quiet. You start in the first grade and you finish in the 12th grade within the same school. Most schools, like, they include 12 grades. Nobody complained, not even the Ashkenazic Haredi Jews. No one complained and said, um, the quality is not enough and there's problems regarding the integration. And there are no secular Jews or non-Haredi Jews in the Haredi schools because no one wants to send his children to a school that, you know, their children will feel unwelcomed or that they don't belong. So it happens naturally there are schools from the, for the modern Orthodox community, for the secular community, and from, for the Haredi communities. There are transitions between the, between the schools. I talk to people, who, for example, who were belts, and they prefer a school of another Hasidic group. Why? They had their own reasons. Sometimes they, uh, one mother told me that she even wants her children to be familiar with other groups. One mother who was actually a vice school principal, she was, <laughs> she was not simple, okay? She had like a, a very high status in the community. And she even said that she sent her daughters to like be a guide in the secular schools during the summer for the uh, young children in the secular schools because she really wanted her girls to be more open and to know many kinds of Jews. So <clears throat> my normative argument in the paper was first of all that we have to study, um, this is a, a <laughs> This is a, 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 my basic argument about education policy. You know, some of, the, uh, some of the agents here create laws, okay? Many of them, actually. But it doesn't matter at all if you create a rule and you can't, like, you know, um, <coughs> put the ball in the right place. You have to think about how education policy is constituted. It's like cogwheels. You have to be smart to know how the cogwheels are actually working, to know the context, to know the society, and then to decide how to shape the law. Because the law can sound great, but it can have like no impact at all. So if we look in the admission policies, we see a slippery slope. A slippery slope is a legal term. It actually says, a slippery slope is when you have a legal rule, which sounds really great, but then it's, it's very, very reasonable that you will go from this point to this point very easy. It happens a lot in privacy law, because when we agree for, you know, a certain practice that degrades our privacy, it's very reasonable that we will see more and more practices and we will get used that everyone is collecting information about us. And it's the same thing here. It's a slippery slope. You will allow one school to choose pupils according to religious affiliation and you can very, very fast 
see yourself allowing distinctions that are based on social class and ethnicity. The, in the Israeli Haredi community, the uh, religious aspects of the Sephardic uh, uh, Haredi community are really close to the ethnic origin aspects. So you can't really make the distinctions. There is no reasonable way to make such, such distinctions. For example, many schools, um, they put in the school code a requirement that the um, uh, uh, prayers in the school will be in an Ashkenazic style. So that's discrimination or a reasonable requirement. It's very hard to make uh, uh, these distinctions. So this is one aspect that we should take into account. There's a slippery slope and you can always uh, uh, say that it is religion, but actually it's also ethnicity and social class. And the other aspect that we should take into account that there are asymmetric power relations between individual parents on one hand and very, very strong institutional uh, um, systems in the other side. And I, said, I say institutional systems and not schools because the schools are always part of any institutional system. It can be the school association, it can be the rabbis, it can be even a political party because most Haredi schools are affiliated with certain political parties, okay? So we have um, uh, unequal, extremely unequal power relations. And when we have extremely unequal power relations, so the strong usually wins. We should take that into account when we shape the law, that parents don't have many chances uh, in view of these uh, asymmetric power relations. And I think if we connect it to um, broader cultural issues in Israel, um, do you know um, the tribe's uh, uh, speech of uh, uh, <coughs> our uh, president, Ruvi uh, Rivlin? Uh, it's a very famous uh, speech that he gave two years ago and it had a really, really high impact on Israeli society. He actually said that Israeli society is composed of four tribes, the Arab, the secular, the national religious, and the ultra-Orthodox. Why I don't like this speech at all? Because he looks, and many other people in Israel, looks at the ultra-Orthodox uh, tribe as a tribe, as the same color, okay? And it's a really, it's a wrong view of reality. They have so many colors, and some of them are much uh, closer to the secular uh, uh, tribe, and others are really, really extreme. And if you see the ultra-Orthodox as a tribe, so you don't see these internal variations, and you don't see what we call in political theory minority within a minority. So when you have a minority within a minority, you have the state, has to recognize these unequal power relations and to help minorities within minorities to assert their rights. The state has a moral obligation, especially when the minority is an illiberal community, especially. And you have many political theorists write about this issue. Will Kimlika is one of the famous. But this is a classic issue of minority within a minority. Um, who needs the help of the state uh, to assert the rights and, and um, uh, the tribes are really a wrong picture, I think, of um, Israeli society. Very say okay. So this is, um, uh, uh, this is a, a, a last word, what I suggest. I suggest, I think that we don't have, in Israel, we don't have another option but to prohibit um, distinctions to prohibit uh, uh, the schools actually to make distinctions between students because equ equality is sometimes like antibiotics. You have like to kill good intentions with bad intentions, okay? You can't, uh, uh, of course there are 
it can be very, um, I think, positive in certain circumstances to allow a minority group to uh, um, um, handle uh, admission policies to its schools and make sure that the school actually fits the group. But in Israel, at least, um, it comes with a lot of bad intentions. And because we, can, we, we don't have like a, a reasonable way to make the distinctions between the good and the bad, uh, we should kill the, all the intentions together. And to, uh, uh, like the Belgian example, like in Antwerp, we should like uh, uh, creating the law a very, very clear prohibition on, dis on uh, discrimination and uh, uh, on selective admission policies. And the schools can set school codes, but not uh, select their students. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs>